This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. State lawmakers set a high bar for themselves last year. They passed big bills on state finances, construction defect litigation, and highway funding. Many called it their most productive session in years, despite the fact that control of the legislature is split between the parties. Well, now they're on their way back to Denver for the 2018 legislative session, which kicks off next week. CPR's Sam Brash, who covers the legislature, is in the studio with a preview. Hi, Sam. Hi, glad to be here. Uh, Before we get into the issues, just remind us, what's the political landscape look like at the Capitol? Has it changed at all in the offseason? It hasn't changed much. So like you mentioned, there are still split chambers. Uh, Democrats control the governor's mansion and the Colorado House, where they have a nine-vote margin. Republicans control the Senate, and their margin actually grew a little bit in the last week. They're now up by two votes, not just one. But that's a little deceptive. It's because uh, Senator Sherry John changed her party affiliation from Democratic to Independent, but it looks like she'll still caucus with the Democrats, and she's always been a very independent senator. So basically, the news is CPR's favorite political TV show show is back. We got the same characters, the same cast, just some new plots and storylines. Storylines. Well, let's get to one of those. An issue that has dominated Colorado political news for the last few months is sexual harassment at the Capitol. Uh, We are having the House Speaker and the Senate President on tomorrow to talk about that. But catch us up quickly. How did we get here? You're going to have a lot to talk about. So basically, uh, in the interim, since the end of the last legislative session, formal complaints have been lodged against four lawmakers having to do with sexual misconduct. These are two Democrats, two Republicans, all are male, all deny the allegations. And the most widely reported charges have to do with Democratic Representative Steve Lebsack. And he's been accused of sexual misconduct by his fellow Democratic colleague, Representative Faith Winter, along with a number of other lobbyists and um, aides. Winter says Lebsack tried to get her to go home with him at a party in 2016. She says he became aggressive, that he grabbed her elbow at one point. Um, And with that, Democratic Representative Matt Gray has said he would introduce a resolution to expel Lebsack. And if that goes through, it'd be the first time a lawmaker has been just kicked out since 1915. 1915. Is there any indication Lebsack would try to avoid an expulsion and just resign? Yeah, I talked to him yesterday and he says no. I mean, that's what Gray wants. That's what legislative leadership wants. But Lebsack says the allegations are false and he even plans to continue his run for state treasurer. What about changes to how the Capitol handles these sorts of allegations generally? Yeah, so they are moving down that path towards really revising how they deal with allegations of sexual misconduct. They're going to do things like hire an HR professional to deal with these sorts of cases. Right now, often legislative leadership has to deal with with it uh, themselves. Um, They're also trying to hire an expert to review their policy. That's known as uh, Joint Rule 38. And since it's legislative, they'll actually have to, you know, vote on it in order to tweak it or change it. And so some big questions come up, like when a lawmaker is... Uh, accused of multiple allegations of sexual misconduct. Is is that something the public should know about? Uh, I will be sure to ask him about that tomorrow. Uh, what other issues are set to come up? Yeah, I asked a, a whole slew of lawmakers what they thought would be sort of the, the main issue, the main debate, and most agreed here with Republican Senator Kevin Lundberg. When people ask me, so what are the big deals coming down the pike this year? I see Para as being maybe at the top of the list. 
PARA. That's Colorado's pension fund for public employees. Right. And it supplies or manages retirement for over half a million current or former public employees. And right now, the fund owes $32 billion more than it can afford. And it'll take decades for them to pay that off with their current revenues. So lawmakers are looking for ways to make the fund solvent in 30 years. Haven't they been here before? Because I remember lawmakers tried tackling this a few years ago. Yeah, they did. They instituted a number of austerity measures in 2010. But financial models showed the fund is back on a path where it's at risk of being unable to pay retirees at what? some point in the future. Yeah, what happened? Um, so a couple things. One, their just investments in the stock market didn't do as well as they'd hoped. Retirees are also living longer. And there's now three proposals on the table to deal with this. One comes from the para board. They're looking at some cuts to retiree benefits, but want taxpayers to contribute more to the fund through state agencies. Governor Hickenlooper has his own plan. It's looking at some similar cuts to retiree benefits, but it's trying to protect the agencies and thereby the taxpayers from higher contributions. And then there's Republican state treasurer Walker Stapleton. As you know, he's also a candidate for governor. Indeed. And he's uh, trying to freeze cost of living adjustments for retiree benefits. He wants to raise the retiree age. And he wants to give employees an option to get out of a pension style retirement plan and do more of a 401k style plan. And if they don't act this year, lawmakers really do think it's it's only going to get worse, not better. Okay, so that's the picture around Para. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and CPR's Sam Brash joins us for a preview of the 2018 legislative session, which begins next week. He'll be at the Capitol covering it. And there's good news under the dome as well. Lawmakers will likely have more money than they counted on. Is that correct? That's right. So the governor's budget office uh, thinks it's going to have more revenue this year, this fiscal year than they expected, and about $250 million more next fiscal year. Um, That's because of economic growth. It also is because of the recent tax bill that passed Congress at the federal level. And what it means is it's setting up a fight over transportation funding. This is a perennial issue at the Capitol. As you know, um, state transit officials say there's a backlog of around $9 billion in, in highway and transit projects. Republicans want all this extra money to go to transportation. Democrats see more unmet needs. They want the money to help out in areas like education and child health care. Do you think drivers and commuters can count on some extra money for transportation? Yeah, I do. Uh, just yesterday, the governor released a new revenue plan. This is just his proposal for the next fiscal year. And he wants the extra revenue split sort of 60-40 between transportation in the state rainy day fund. We also recently heard about legislative efforts to address the opioid epidemic. Representative Brittany Pedersen chaired a bipartisan committee that recommended six bills to address the crisis. This is making sure that we're keeping people alive today and increasing the likelihood of them actually moving towards recovery. And again, there was bipartisan agreement on those six bills that it generated. Do you anticipate that those will move forward? Yeah. And sort of the most controversial one, as you know, is this safe injection site in Denver that they want to okay. It'd be the first one in the country. Obviously, there's some discomfort around the idea of allowing illegal drug use, you know, with medical supervision. Um, But, you know, a lot of people see the opioid crisis 
cases as really severe, and lawmakers on either side of the aisle appear open to this. Sam Brash, what else do you see coming up? So one perennial issue is going to be oil and gas, especially after the Firestone explosion last year. That's when a home exploded north of Denver due to a severed gas flow line. Um, Democratic Senator Matt Joan wants to introduce something called the Protect Act. It would give localities far more authority to stop or limit oil and gas drilling. I'm going to fight fracking in Boulder County regardless of odds. It's not okay to put these wells near people like they are, and we've already seen that. Innocent people have been killed. He's also talking about a bill that would require public utilities in Colorado to be 100% renewable by 2035. Matt Jones there. So are these bills meant to pass or send a message? You know, probably to send a message. I talked to Republican Senator Ray Scott. He's sort of Jones' loyal opposition, always going to be one of the voices against new limitations on oil and gas. And, And here's what he had to say about some of those ideas. Let's remember, first of all, Matt's running for county commissioner. <laughs> so so anything that he does at this point is a campaign speech, right? So you might have heard that Senator Jones is running for Boulder County Commissioner, and lots of lawmakers are going to be running for new offices this November. It's a, it's a huge election year at the state level. Democrats stand to take retake control of the Senate, which means they would control every big batch branch of government. Um, so really, you should expect this session to be less about compromises and more about making a case to voters. But you do see spots for bipartisanship. I think of opioids. For sure. Instance. Yeah. Like opioids. Uh, one issue I'm watching is jail reform, helping counties deal with surging populations. Um, jail populations. You know, I, I visited the Pueblo County Jail, which is where this is the the worst uh, problem in the in the state, and it, it is unbelievable to see up close. They're also looking at tighter requirements for public defenders in municipal courts, shoring up some financing for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. But it is going to be a really tough year, even to do those sorts of small things at the legislature. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. CPR's Sam Brash previewing the 2018 legislative session, which he'll cover for us. It kicks off next Wednesday. And again, tomorrow, hear from two of the most powerful people under the dome about the session ahead. The state's largest drug treatment provider is gone. Arapaho House closed Tuesday, citing financial problems. So can others pick up the slack? We'll put that question now to Sobriety House in Denver, which describes itself as the oldest drug and alcohol treatment center in the state. Crystal Colusi is its deputy director. And Crystal, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. What was your reaction when you heard Arapaho House was closing? It was shocking and unfortunate. Yeah, shocking. Uh, Tell me why. Say more about that. Well, Arapaho House was a very large provider um, across the full spectrum of services for substance abuse treatment. So it means that now there is a gap for people who need help. And that gap, as you say, full spectrum meaning it's inpatient, it's outpatient, and I suppose they treated all sorts of addiction? Yes. Okay. Uh, much of that also true for uh, your organization, Sobriety House. Correct. Uh, Arapaho House announced it was closing a little more than two weeks ago. Um, and as I said, both inpatient and outpatient. What has been the effect so far on Sobriety House? Like, is your phone ringing off the hook? Yes, we already had a growing wait list for the demand um, for treatment. But since then, it's increased a little bit. And we've tried to get current Arapaho House clients 
in with us, especially our priority populations, which are, you know, IV drug users, pregnant women, women with dependent children, and involuntary commitment clients. So, so you, you have to triage calls. to some extent. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Involuntary commitment, that folks whose addictions are so severe that a family member or a friend perhaps is having them committed. Is that what that means? Yes, that's what that means. Okay. You say there were already wait lists at Sobriety House. So how, how are you able to accommodate people? Well, unfortunately, you know, we have to prioritize, like I said, those particular clients and just manage it the best that we can right now. Um, there's still some uncertainty as to funding. Um, we we have 72 beds, and about 16 of them right now are fully funded for indigent clients by Signal, who is our managed service organization. And we have capacity for more. We could increase our intensive residential treatment program to up to 28 more beds if needed. It's just uncertain at this time what's going to happen with that. With the funding to fill those beds. So let's explore that a bit. People in drug treatment pay for that treatment in a variety of ways, right? So it could be out of pocket. Uh, They may have insurance. Uh, And Medicaid can pick up the bill. Um, I presume you accept the full range of patients at Sobriety House? We do. Medicaid does not cover residential treatment. Right. Inpatient is not covered by Medicaid. So when you say that there are questions about funding and whether you can fill those beds, help us understand that a little bit more. Sure. So we have a contract with Signal, who's our managed service organization, and they're under the Office of Behavioral Health. And, you know, we've actually served um, and and the funding switched just to explain a little bit for for decades. It has been um, a problem for many providers for the the federal and the state funding. But as of July, um, things changed for the better from Sobriety House's perspective. They actually covered essentially the full cost of treatment for us. And why did that change happen? Uh, Legislation. Okay. And so SB 202, which is the Senate bill for marijuana tax money, um, also essentially doubled the funding that we were getting from our regular contract. And yeah, Sobriety last, House, last year, the legislature allocated $6 million in correct. marijuana revenues to spend on addiction services. Yes, which has been great. And Sobriety House has expended all of the funds of our contract and SB 202 so far and additional. In other words, we've essentially provided services for another quarter of a million dollars that has not been reimbursed. And Um, and those are folks who couldn't pay themselves. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And is that true of many uh, folks struggling with addiction that they often can't pay for themselves? Is that a a good chunk of your population? It is. And it's our mission to serve indigent people. Um, But again, you know, addiction covers the full spectrum. It's, It's not particular to economic status or race or anything like that. It affects all of us. I'm sure, Ryan, that you probably know someone yourself who struggles with it. And Indeed. It impacts all of us. Yeah. And so questions remain about whether funding will be allocated for all of these people in need, whether that funding would then transfer to your organization, Sobriety House. I mean, I guess one question I have is, how is it that you manage to keep your doors open, right? And Arapaho House does not. 
And I'm not expecting you, Crystal, to be an expert on their finances, but one wonders how some addiction treatment centers can stay open and the largest has closed. Right. And that's a good question. As far as Arapaho House, I do know that, you know, their expenses ultimately exceeded their revenues. And maybe there are other reasons behind that. I, I couldn't speak to that per se. Sounds like it's a um, bit of a mystery to you as well. A little bit. And and our business model is different. We, we don't serve the same uh, population per se. Um, all of our clients are adult um, clients. We don't have the program for women with children, for example. And so I don't know the, f- the funding structure for those particular programs and, and what they cost. Um, and our structure is just set up very differently. We, we don't have a lot of overhead and that type of thing. So Okay. So it could be that some of the population that Arapaho House was taking in uh, added to the troubles that they uh, encountered. What is your success at Sobriety House in treatment? Do you track the percentage of those who are able to kick the habits and remain sober? That's a little bit tough to do to keep track of people after they graduate our program. Um, so outcomes are are difficult to track. However, we've had a lot of success stories and people that have stayed in touch with us. Um, in fact, a lot of our board of directors are recovering themselves. Um, and we have hired some of our, our house management staff. A lot of them are in recovery or came through our treatment program at one point or another. So they have years sober which is great. And they know the clientele. They know the issues that the clients are dealing with. Well, what do you think, uh, Crystal Colusi of Sobriety House, is the long-term effect on the community of Arapaho House, a large treatment provider, closing? What do you see down the horizon? Well, let me answer in the short term first. Sure. Um, It's it's tragic. It's a shock. We're all going to have to pick up the pieces. And there are a lot of other providers stepping up to the plate to try and help fill the gap and provide services to those clients that can no longer be served by Arapaho House and as who of are yesterday. Probably, who are also probably wondering about the funding, too. Yeah. Sure. And in the long term, I'm, I'm hopeful that this can be, you know, a lesson for all of us, um, you know, to result in a better system with more capacity in place and, you know, that they'll keep better tabs on all of us as viable businesses and that type of thing. Hopefully lessons can be learned. Do you think that there was perhaps not enough tracking of Arapaho House? I am not sure. Hmm. But you raised the question there at least. And do you think that there needs to be more state and federal funding? So one thing we heard from the leader of Arapaho House shortly after the announcement that it would close is that there was a lack of of federal and state support. Is that true or is it just that it has to be better managed? Well, both. It has been true for decades, but again, as of July of this past year, the funding switched over. So the rates of reimbursement are better. Um, and it's just a matter of taking advantage of those in order to serve more clients, you know, in the most efficient way possible. Um, All right. Yeah. I want to thank you for your time. Yes, thank you. Crystal Colusi, Deputy Director of Sobriety House in Denver. It is one of the drug and alcohol treatment facilities preparing to pick up the slack after Tuesday's closing of Arapaho House. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
When our next guest, Michelle C. Witten, thinks of her daughter's future, she sees a lot of uncertainty. Sophia is 14 years old and has Down syndrome. So along with intellectual disabilities, she's more prone to some diseases than the average person. Now, though, groundbreaking research out of Colorado could provide some answers. Scientists at CU say they've upended conventional wisdom that Down syndrome is a brain condition and found it's more related to the immune system. This could lead to medical breakthroughs for everyone. Michelle C. Witten is here to explain. She is president of the Global Down Syndrome Foundation, which is based in Denver. And Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So the fundamental question scientists started with was, why are people with Down syndrome less likely to get certain kinds of cancer, breast cancer, for instance, and yet more likely to get other diseases, uh, autoimmune diseases like celiac, type 1 diabetes? I wonder if if Sophia has any of those problems and how she might benefit from this research. Right. Actually, at this point, knock on wood, she does not. But she is predisposed, of course, to Alzheimer's early onset. And a lot of the autoimmune disorders that people with Down syndrome and typical people get happen later in life. So looking forward, you know, it is uncertain. And we really want some of these issues addressed as soon as possible. And this is why a better understanding of the nature of Down syndrome and its interaction with the immune system is so important. Uh, To be clear, Down syndrome isn't caused by an autoimmune disorder. It's caused by having an extra copy of a chromosome, chromosome 21. Uh, But scientists have known for a while that people with Down syndrome were more prone to autoimmune diseases. What was the key finding they made in the laboratory about why that happens? Mm -hmm. Well, it was so interesting. They looked at um, the blood, uh, the cells of people with Down syndrome, and they found that in people with Down syndrome, there's a pathway called the interferon pathway that is lit up 24-7. It is not supposed to be lit up 24-7. In typical people, it's only lit up when we're fighting virus or infection. So that taxation on your immune system 24-7 can lead to a lot of the issues that our children and adults have from cancer issues, Alzheimer's inflammation in the brain, and clearly autoimmune disorders, which they're more prone to. So it's as if their immune systems are on overdrive? Yes, hyperactive. Okay. And that shields them from some diseases, I suppose, but it makes them more susceptible to others. That's correct. So they're highly protected from, say, a heart attack or stroke um, and also solid tumor cancers. But unfortunately, they're predisposed to some terrible things like Alzheimer's disease. So obviously, some Scientists would want to know why they're shielded from some diseases, how that might benefit the general population in fighting disease, and then on the flip side, why they are more vulnerable, those with Down syndrome, and presumably how to defend them against that. And that's correct. As a parent of a child with Down syndrome, I'd like to think our population is important enough that the National Institutes of Health and Congress would get behind funding. But if we need to have that kind of leverage, I think it's very clear that if you study people with Down syndrome, we're going to have cures or breakthroughs in diseases that affect millions of typical Americans. This is interesting because you testified recently, I think, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., to this effect. Yes. And it sounds like to to a certain degree, you had to make the case to them, if we want more federal funding, maybe I should demonstrate that this Down syndrome research benefits all comers. 
Absolutely. And I felt like it was 10 years culminated in one room in that wonderful um, committee uh, hearing. And we had a person with Down syndrome testify, Frank Stevens, and his testimony got 160 million views. It was, it was a, I think, a, a, a moment in time that was pivotal to say research is really important to help medical outcomes of these individuals and to help millions of other Americans. Do you have a sense that, that more federal funding is coming for this? I hope so. I mean, it's what we've worked for for the last decade. It's what we've been working for so hard in D.C. pretty much every month. Um, I think all of us would be disappointed if that didn't happen. Uh, But we're here for the long run. Our kids aren't going away. And there's like a population explosion of people with Down syndrome. So we're going to fight the good fight. Uh, I want to get back to that, that there's more Down syndrome in the population, you're saying, in just a bit. But let me remind you that you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Michelle C. Witten of the Global Down Syndrome Foundation based in Denver. Uh, I want to get back to this groundbreaking research that uh, was out of CU. Mm -hmm. So uh, you described that people with Down syndrome, their um, immune systems are in overdrive. Could that have effects for their uh, mental capacity. Absolutely. Might it actually be tied to the intellectual deficits that we see? It could, definitely. And um, the research, you know, that is done by Dr. Joaquin Espinoza at the Cernic Institute really shows that the brain inflammation is caused a lot by the immune system. And 15% of our brain cells are immune cells, actually. Really? So, yes. So this could have huge impact going forward on cognition issues and also inflammation of the brain associated with Alzheimer's. I mean, this is fascinating. So it may be that the, the mind aspects of Down syndrome are related to the immune system aspects of it. Absolutely. And I used to say, I'm only interested in things that people with Down syndrome get. I'm not interested in what they're protected from and discovering why that is because I want to help people with Down syndrome and they don't get solid tumor cancers. But what I've learned as a layperson in systems biology is it's all related. Like if we're addressing one aspect, inevitably it'll address another aspect. So the immune system, cancer, inflammation of the brain, it's all connected. Are there drugs available to reduce what you described as this interferon response, this overdrive aspect? That's the exciting part and part of why also we need, you know, either pharma funding or NIH funding. Um, There are drugs out there that bring interferon down and it really is kind of obvious that the next steps should be looking at mice models and even um, human clinical trials to say, what does that do, of course, with any mitigation of any side effects? No parent wants side effects. Could inflammation be related to Alzheimer's? So you were talking about inflamed brains in those with Down syndrome. Might that be related to dementia? Absolutely. Um, There's two things that are happening. Unfortunately, there's a gene called the APP gene on chromosome 21 that, of course, is triplicated in people with Down syndrome. In a typical person, it gets triplicated over time, and they get Alzheimer's, the plaques and tangles. So we know that the APP gene is a protagonist in this. But there's also inflammation in the brain that happens in Alzheimer's. And now we feel like one of the contributors to that is this interferon pathway. Fascinating, because I hear so much more these days about the role that inflammation plays in our health. And the idea that that might be related to Alzheimer's, I think, is something of of a new thought. Mm -hmm. You talked about the importance of this to the, the 
the community connected specifically to Down syndrome and that, that community is growing, I think you might have said exploding. Can, can you put some context around that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, of course, there's this idea that everybody's terminating their babies with Down syndrome left, right, and center. And I don't know if you read about the Iceland you know, issue. The, and the idea of weaning Down syndrome out of the population. Right. And there are some countries, I believe the Denmark president called for a Down syndrome-free Denmark by like 2030. Or I mean, it, it's a little bit scary when you say it that way. And in the U.S., it's the opposite. And I just want to be very clear about that, that the live births have increased from one in 1,000 in 2002 to one in 691 today. So live births are increasing. Is that a function of parents simply acknowledging that their child has Down syndrome and carrying them to term? I think we can't know for sure. Okay. But I think with the deinstitutionalization, the um, le- increased lifespan, which is an, another thing, um, and older mothers in the U- United States, and then seeing uh, great examples of people with Down syndrome doing things and living longer. And we can all guess that those are contributors to this um, live birth increase. But the other thing is that the lifespan has gone from 28 years old in the 1980s to almost 60 today. Oh, wow. More than doubling. So you don't have to be a mathematician to say, okay, increased uh, life uh, live births and a more than doubling of lifespan, there is a population explosion happening, um, people with Down syndrome in the United States today. And happening quickly, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap up, I- I'd like to talk just a bit more about your personal involvement in, sure. in Down syndrome research and activism. W- when did this start for you? What was the, the earliest? Well, I had um, an amnio when I was pregnant with my first child, Sophia, and I was told by a genetic counselor at that time that essentially my baby would die by three, that there were all these diseases that my baby would have if my baby lived beyond three. And then she gave me a tissue and said, Mrs. Whitten, please don't cry. 80 to 90% of people terminate. You can too. And that was my genetic counseling. I am rabidly pro-women and, you know, to be given that kind of inaccurate information really got me going. And so that was the beginning of uh, my righteous gene kicking in. And then when I learned that Down syndrome was one of the least funded genetic conditions by the NIH, uh, that started me thinking. And then my parents, of course, retired from the cable industry and said, oh, where do we put our money? And I said, I know, Down syndrome. And that's how it all started. And that's how it all started. Yeah. Uh, because your your parents, uh, your father, the founder and chairman of STARS. Yeah. yeah. Okay. STARS and Encore, right. Well, thanks for sharing your experience with us and this research out of Colorado. Yeah, it's so fabulous. Thank you for having me. Michelle C. Witten is president of the Global Down Syndrome Foundation based in Denver. The grisly murder of a family in Aurora in 1984 partly inspired a new novel. Author Matthew Sullivan remembers the case vividly. He was a kid in Aurora when it happened. His literary debut is called Midnight at the Bright Ideas Bookstore, and the backdrop is essentially the tattered cover bookstore in Denver's lower downtown, where Sullivan worked for four years. The novel is just coming out in paperback. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When you started this book, what did you have in mind first? Your time at the Tattered or the murder in Aurora? Uh, so it really began with the setting. 
the tattered cover itself just had such a transformative impact on my life. I understand you met your wife there. I met my wife at the tattered cover. Yeah, it was early on there. Um, I was working a shift in the kids section and I looked across the the scattered books and the smell of dirty diapers was in the air and essentially that was our future. So we, we started dating. Oh, so you're parents. We are parents, so yeah. That, we have that you met in the kids section of the tattered is like prescient. Yeah, absolutely. Really um, – Meeting Libby there was a probably the most significant thing that happened to me in my time there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you start with the idea of that storied bookstore in Lodo, which, mm-hmm. you know, has just got like rich tones of wood everywhere and that mm-hmm. fantastic green carpets. Yeah. And you yeah. think, I want to set a book there. Yeah. And then I guess what? You want to include a grisly murder as well it's it's not the the bearing i would necessarily go with yeah yeah so what happened there was i i really was focusing on the bookstore setting itself and a and a bookseller named lydia and as i started to work on her and began to assemble a mystery that that had to do with books and uh, specifically um an incident that happened in the bookstore i found myself kind of reaching back to something that happened when i was a kid when i was 13 years old and for whatever reason, that incident kind of inserted itself into Lydia's experience and became this aspect of, of her character that essentially defined her as a character and really helped to define the shape of the mystery. Yes, it's part of her history. And what do you remember about this murder in Aurora? Well, it was shocking. Uh, it happened in January of 1984. Um, the Bennett family, uh, anybody who was living in Colorado at the time, probably uh, recalls it. Essentially, a man with a hammer went into this house, uh, a family's home, and murdered three of the family members and left one um, terribly wounded. And it happened at a time in my life when I was kind of straddling the place between adulthood and childhood, eighth grade. And it was the first incident that really kind of, uh, I feel like, took me out of childhood and awakened me to some really um, terrifying things that I had not, not that I was naive um, or that I had no uh, exposure to violence or shocking things before that, but just in terms of the place that I was in my life, it really was scary. It terrified me and it terrified my whole family and it terrified all of our neighbors. And I think that anybody who was in Aurora or Denver at the time um, felt that shock and, and horror as well. I can so identify with that. I remember being a kid in L.A. when the Night Stalker was mm-hmm. prowling. And it, it really does have a way of pushing um, fast forward on childhood somehow. You just like the world is not as safe as your parents have made it out to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my one of my siblings, my sister, would talk about how she couldn't sleep without having the sheets pulled up over her head. And I, I talked to people, um, family friends at the time, who said, you know, they never locked their door before that. And afterwards, they began locking their door. And of course, part of the thing that was so horrific about it was not just the incident itself, but that the guy got away with it. Um, this was over 30 years ago, and there's still a detective in the Aurora Police Department, Steve Connor, who's actively um, pursuing this case. But here we are 30 years later, and the guy was never caught. And I think that that aspect, that kind of open-ended aspect, maybe increased the impact on on a lot of us. Yeah, I'll I'll say without giving too much away that um, the loose ends are a bit more tied up by the end of your book uh, about about who did this. But, you know, let's not dwell too much on it because it's it's not 
by any means the sole thread in your book. Right. Um, I'd like to talk about the setting yeah. of the tattered cover. You're listening to Colorado Matters, by the way. I'm speaking with author Matthew Sullivan. He worked for four years, met his wife at the tattered cover bookstore in Denver, and he's written a book now that's essentially based on his experiences there called Midnight at the Bright Ideas Bookstore. And you write a lot about the, the kinds of folks who populate bookstores, the customers. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess they, they really fit into like some archetypes uh, that you have observed in, in the years that you worked there. Sure, sure. So while I was working on this book, I spent a lot of time just kind of immersed in my memories and my experiences within the bookstore. And I also had worked at a bookstore in Boston after I left Tattered Cover for a couple of years. So there, a lot of these things kind of blended together. Mm. But the population of people who, who go into a bookstore 99 percent of the time um, are just wonderful people who are making a choice to step into a store to support a local business, to um, kind of open themselves up to discovering something new. But there are the customers who kind of stand out who are the anomalies. And these are like the cliche version of this is the, the customer who comes up to the counter and says, you know, I'm looking for this book and it's, it's got a bluish, orangish, reddish cover and I don't remember the author <laughs> or the title. <laughs> you know. And uh, so that's kind of the cliche, you know, anomaly of the of the uh, the customer archetype. But there are how, wait, well. how often are you able to track down the book that they describe with no title or author? You know, before the internet, it was a little bit more challenging. Uh -huh. But also before the internet, uh, you would interact with other people and just ask around, and and it was surprising. I would say most of the time uh, there was somebody who says, "Oh yeah." bluish, orangish cover. I know that book. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you do describe some of these um, more colorful characters in the book is, I think, book frogs. Yeah, yeah, the book frogs. And this is a, this is really through um, Lydia's point of view and, and just getting into her character. Again, she's the protagonist and a bookseller at the Bright bookseller. Ideas bookstore. Yeah. Exactly. From her perspective, the, this is a group of people who come into the store not so much as customers but looking for a sanctuary, looking for a place to spend some time. And for Lydia, this is exactly what the, the role that the bookstore serves for her. She, as a character, had, had you know, of course, experienced something horrific as a child. And then um, as an adult, she finally begins to find her feet again and find some peace and solace in the bookstore setting. And so when she looks out, you know, in, in the store, in the place where she's spending all of this time, and sees people who kind of have arrived in the store and are hanging out and playing chess and kind of, you know, lurking around the store um, and reading – and maybe not the typical customer, uh, it, it invokes in her a great sense of empathy and um, She's and kind of like part social worker in some ways. She really she, is. She feels for these folks. Yeah. And again, I think that comes back to her own personal experience because the bookstore and books have played such a pivotal role in her life in, in providing some kind of peace for her that, that she wants to offer that to others as well, especially the people who are maybe a little bit more marginalized or downtrodden. You have a real knack for capturing the essence of a character in just a few lines. So is is it Lydia's boyfriend or her husband? I'm not sure if they're uh, married. Her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. Okay. Yeah. You write that he's the guy who would rather take a part of television than eat nachos in front of it. Right. <laughs> um, and of a staffer at the bookstore, you write, he walked around like a Muppet, but always looked sad. Right. Right. How do these kinds of descriptions come about? 
uh, through a lot of rewriting. Okay. <laughs> you know? That was not on the first take? The no. First uh, sometimes I'm kind you, of relieved to know that. Right. No, sometimes you hit a gem right away, but most of the time it's just a lot of revision and a lot of rewriting and really trying to, and especially in a mystery when pacing is so important and you really want to get readers turning the pages and moving forward, you can't linger too long. So you really, for me anyway, I try to kind of boil it down to the little gems that are going to capture a person's personality and individual individuality and make them stand out as something like not a stereotype or a cliche. Yeah. So in fewer than 10 words, walked around like a Muppet, but always looked sad. I can just picture the gait of this character. Yeah. Yeah. Writing a female protagonist, Mm -hmm. is there, is there a lot of thought that goes into like what gender a main character is going to be? Not at all. You know, this was really a practical choice for me. I, I had in my Writing up until this point, I had focused a lot on on characters who were kind of alter egos of myself. And so when I sat down with a blank page for this one, I consciously said I'm not going to write some kind of alter ego story. Hmm. And Lydia emerged. And I think once a character emerges, when you spend time – and I do. I spend a lot of time just kind of thinking about them before and during the writing process. um, They begin to kind of – take on a life of their own on the page. So I guess the gender aspect for me wasn't super standard or like a conscious choice of mine. It just kind of emerged as like, that's who I'm going to write about Mm. because that's not one of these other alter egos. And really, she just kind of bloomed to life for me on the page. Um, have you, you're in town, you, you live in Washington state. I live in rural Washington. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're back in Denver. Have you been back to the tattered yet? And have you seen your book on the shelf there? I have not. Okay. I have not. I, I, I just got into town. Okay. So so we're speaking to you before that experience. Right. Is that going to be kind of like fraught for you? Uh, you know, I have a lot of family in town and friends in town, so I'm back in Denver a lot. Uh-huh. And so I, I have gone into the Tattered Cover virtually every time that I'm in town, and so I go and stock up. But so your own book will presumably my, be there. Yeah, yeah. It It is definitely a uh, – uh, there's a synchronicity there of art imitating life, imitating art. And somehow that all <laughs> kind of merges together. But it, yeah, it's a fantastic experience. And, I, and I'm just really moved that the story that I was trying to tell made it this far to actually arrive on a shelf and that people are reading it and, and are interested in it. It's really um, humbling. Are you surprised by how dark the book turned out? Not particularly. No? You know, I'm, I'm interested in crime fiction. And, and I guess my approach has always been to kind of not shy away from those darker aspects of storytelling and trying to capture crime as it impacts real people, even though these are characters. For me, this is not about plot as much as it is about the impact of crime on real human beings and trying to kind of capture that ripple effect. Uh, in terms of the darkness, the flip side of the darkness for me is attempting through other characters and through humor and through kind of uh, the setting, the glorious, glorious bookstore setting of the the tattered cover. The bookstore anchors it. It anchors the darkness in in some light. It does. That was very conscious, just trying to kind of cast some balance there so that for every, you know, darker scene, there is at least something else that, that is hopeful and maybe even funny. Well, what, what's next? Isn't that, that's such a rude question, right? You've just finished a book (laughs) and then I go, give me more. Yeah. But but what's next for you? On the writing front, uh, I'm working on another literary mystery novel. This one is set in a strange little small town in Washington state and it's in the early stages. And 
we'll kind of see where it goes, but I'm excited to be immersed in it. You do that uh, as you teach as well. Yeah, I teach at a community college. That's kind of what got me out to the Northwest. Yeah. And uh, you teach, I, I, I gather, writing. I teach writing and mm-hmm. literature and film. Yep. Um, what advice do you have for a young writer who wants to be published? Uh, a couple of things. One is to tell the story that you want to tell. I think it's so important to be kind of true to the story and not think about the marketplace or other things. Mm. And also just to be persistent. It just takes persistence. Um, you're going to face a lot of rejection unless you are somebody who is not me and every other writer on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you have to be persistent. Okay. And yeah. and you're living proof of that? In other words, you can tell them, I, the, you know, I papered the wall with rejection letters or Absolutely. something. Absolutely. Yeah. Papered the wall and the, the garage and the outside of the house and <laughs> everything else. <laughs> I understand that you talk to your students about uh, the evolving role of the victim. And, and maybe we can wrap up with that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean to you? So uh, originally in the mystery genre, the, the first detective story was written by Edgar Allan Poe in the 1840s, Murders of the Rue Morgue. And Poe established a pattern there with how the victim should be treated within the mystery genre that has more or less held true, especially into the you know past few decades or so. It started to change pretty dramatically. But that role was um, what's sometimes called the colorless victim. And this essentially is robbing the victim of their essential humanity and turning them into a plot device, not entirely because you see variations of it over time, but basically that if our attention focuses too much on the loss of life that that is kind of inherent to most mystery fiction, we're not going to be focusing on the detective who is the protagonist in the story and and that's where our attention should be drawn. And one of the things that's happened, um, especially in the past couple of decades and, and a lot right now, recently, some writers, and these are literary mystery writers, are kind of bucking that pattern. Um, and again, there are exceptions along the way, but by and large, it is a pattern. Hmm. And the liter- I mean, it, it helps in this book that your victim survives, right? In other sure. words, it's, it's, it's more difficult to animate a corpse. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. You have to do that entirely through memory or others' memories. Right, right. And, and I guess the idea behind that, again, is to not treat um, the body – the body in the library as a plot device, mm. right? And instead to um, examine and try to invite readers to think of this as real human loss and, and examine its impact on – on the story and the characters around it. So a lot of literary mystery writers like Tana French, Jess Walter, and Bryn Chancellor, uh, writers like these have recently been really immersing readers into the lives of the victim rather than kind of looking at the victim as a stepping stone in the plot that leads to a convenient but satisfying um, resolution. So again, like your main character, Lydia, is very close to this old murder. Right. She survives Mm -hmm. and that means that that she can tell her own story. She can tell her own story. Can you can you do that? Can you tell a fuller story even if it is a body in the library? You can, uh-huh. you can, but I guess, I guess that it has to do with where you're shifting the reader's attention or where you're steering the reader's emotions. Is it possible, though, that that makes mystery too real? Yeah, and I think that... Or honest- too much of a bummer? Yeah, yeah, and I think that, honestly, a lot of readers are kind of hungering for that, that hmm. they're looking for um, some mystery writers. Not everyone, because you turn to books for different reasons, right? But sometimes people want to read a book that maybe is more realist, 
And that um, examines the full humanity involved in storytelling and not just the kind of more convenient parts of that humanity. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Matthew Sullivan's debut novel is called Midnight at the Bright Ideas Bookstore. It comes out in paperback next week. Sullivan grew up in Aurora and worked at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. We spoke back in July. Finally today, we are working on a story about party affiliation. Two prominent Coloradans, a current state lawmaker and a former, have left their parties. If you have two, we want to hear about it. Reach out with why you left or switched political parties. Perhaps you became unaffiliated. Email us, news at CPR.org, news at CPR.org, or tweet at Colorado Matters. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper of Coop Studios in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Public Radio News.